The Tentative Apologist Podcast. Time to think. The story of Omar Khadr is inextricably interwoven with that of Canadian identity in a post-9-11 world. For years, his story occupied national headlines, often polarizing a nation as it embodied concerns about security and terrorism, Islam and the clash of civilizations, punishment and the promise of redemption. As a public narrative, Omar's story begins in 2002 when he was working as a 15-year-old with Taliban soldiers in Afghanistan. On July 27th, he was seriously wounded in a fight with American soldiers, after which he was sent to Guantanamo Bay. While in confinement at Guantanamo, Cotter, a Canadian citizen, pleaded guilty to killing U.S. soldier Sergeant Christopher Speer in the firefight. In 2010, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that the Canadian government's interrogation of Cotter had violated, quote, the most basic Canadian standards of the treatment of detained youth suspects, unquote. Finally, after 10 years in Guantanamo, Cotter was returned to Canada and later released from prison. After suing the Canadian government for violations under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Canadian government settled out of court in 2017 for a payment of $10.5 million, along with an apology on behalf of the government. For much of his unlikely journey, Cotter has been supported by the faculty and students at King's University uh, in Edmonton, Alberta. And in this episode of the Tentative Apologist podcast, I sit down with Roy Birkenbosch of King's to discuss Cotter's case and the complex theological, ethical, and social implications that it raises. Professor Birkenbosch is director at the MICA Center and interdisciplinary professor at King's University, where he has taught since 1995. Previously, he lived and worked in Bangladesh for several years, and he continues to advocate on several important topics, including global poverty, the status of indigenous peoples within Canada, and the complex case of Omar Khadr. Roy, it's uh, great to have you joining us on the Tentative Apologist podcast uh, to talk about a very important issue, which is the story of Omar Khadr, and in particular, the relationship that developed between King's University College and Omar. So maybe if you could just bring us back to 2002 and we could kind of go chronologically a little bit as to what happened originally and then how your university and you personally got involved with Omar. Uh, Sure, I'm happy to do that. Uh, 2002 is the year in which Omar found himself in a firefight. Uh, He was in a community in Afghanistan uh, that was... uh, uh, that was then uh, involved in a firefight with American troops who were there. And uh, Omar was accused of throwing a grenade that took the life of uh, an American soldier, Sergeant Spears. Uh, he himself was wounded very badly. He was found under a pile of rubble, uh, blind in one eye, uh, bullet holes in his back, and, um, and needed to be resuscitated. He, he was really, if they had left him alone, he would have died. He was taken to Bagram Prison from there and then eventually transferred to Guantanamo Bay. Uh, And at Guantanamo uh, Penitentiary, um, 
uh, that's he stayed there for a number of years without really ever being sentenced. And uh, my my uh, my acquaintance, my friend Dennis Edney, who's a lawyer, became Omar's advocate. Uh, he's a pro bono lawyer. Uh, he went down to Guantanamo to meet Omar, and. Uh, uh, eventually, I learned about this story from Dennis, and uh, in 2008, we did a conference at King's called Invisible Dignity, and so it was really themed around uh, trying to draw attention to uh, vulnerable populations in our society who are often under the radar. They're not, they're not visible to the general public, and that included uh, missing and murdered Aboriginal women, it included victims of sexual abuse, it included um, a homeless people who were homeless, but also prisoners. And it was in that context that I invited Dennis Edney to come to King's and to tell Omar's story to our students. Uh, Dennis spoke with a great deal of passion and uh, recited a story that was quite horrific about a, a young man who was at that time now the age of our students. He was, Omar was 15 when the firefight happened in 2002 and when he was first imprisoned. Uh, he was older, uh, in, uh, he would have been around 20 when uh, Dennis spoke to our students about him. And I think the fact that he was the same age as our students, the fact that he was in Guantanamo, uh, which was widely discredited, um, the fact that uh, he was being tortured, that his needs and his rights were being violated by people in authority, including the Canadian government, all of this incited our students to... Uh, uh, to want to know more, they became highly motivated to say, "What can we do? Is there some, is there some way we can participate in in this?" We they they I think they felt very strongly that uh, that there was something that needed to be done by them as Christians. You know, whether it's just visiting the prisoner, whether it's advocating for his rights, uh, whatever it was going to be, they wanted to become involved. And so, a number of our faculty, we we met and we talked, and we encouraged our students to really study it, so they would be knowledgeable. Uh, they read records of the uh, of the House of Commons. Uh, they spoke with MLAs. They interviewed people, watched documentaries, read media reports, uh, and became informed. And uh, a few months later, and they also met for prayer quite frequently uh, in order to pray for Omar, to pray for the widow of Sergeant Spears, to pray for. Dennis to pray for the whole situation and uh, in November of that year they staged a, a, a very successful event at the Winspear Center uh, inviting uh, some musicians but we also invited Michelle Shepard who's the author of a book called Guantanamo's Child uh, and Dennis Edney spoke and um, about 700 Edmontonians showed up to listen and to learn. And, uh, and we've, uh, you know, students come and go, as you know, you know, they graduate, they move on, and, and we've hosted a number of events at King's to kind of keep that story alive. The, the initial momentum from the student body that dissipated over the years as the prime movers in the student body graduated and moved on, but there was sufficient energy around it to keep on going. And uh, I give credit to my colleague Arlette Zink, who really became a champion in this, and uh, uh, she began correspondence with Omar and began to tutor him at a distance. Uh, that was facilitated by Dennis Edney, who would visit Omar from time to time and bring lesson plans and that. And uh, and eventually Arlette was even invited to uh, give testimony at Omar's sentencing hearing in Guantanamo. And uh, upon his release, uh, Omar came to Edmonton. Uh, he, was, he was in prison at the maximum security prison here 
and Arlette uh, organized a group of us to be his educators at the uh, at the uh, Max. So a number of us got to know Omar, and when he was released from prison, he became a student at King's, and we were happy to welcome him in person. So, so what was the? You mentioned because uh, you you just spoke in our chapel. You mentioned the Supreme Court mm -hmm. in Canada. This was a big deal. This was national news mm -hmm. for quite a while. So, so can you talk a little bit as, about the legal background that led to Omar's release? Uh, well, the, the uh, Omar's Omar's release uh, that, that <laughs> it's it's a complicated story because um, Guantanamo Bay was widely discredited. Um, the evidence, you know, the, the, I mean, a lot of evidence was not admissible at Guantanamo Bay at the military commission hearings. And upon the advice of his lawyers, Omar pled guilty to a, a number of charges. And uh, in exchange, it was a plea bargain, in exchange for having his sentence limited to eight years, one more year at Guantanamo, and then subsequent years uh, to be served in Canada. Um, he, he, he did that because he knew um, that even if he had been acquitted, uh, by the military commission at Guantanamo, he would have spent the next 40 years. Uh, they were not going to release him. So he pled, he, he did plead guilty. And because he pled guilty, that's why some people uh, feel free to con continue to say he's a convicted terrorist. So right? specifically guilty yeah. of throwing the grenade that killed Sergeant Spears. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and a number of other things, conspiracy or whatever, okay. you know, and that, those kinds of things. Um, I believe Omar when he says that he really said those things in order to be freed, in order to get out of Guantanamo. Um, and in fact, he has very little recollection of that day. Um, so I, you know, and, and at King's we've taken a pretty strong position over the years of saying that we really are not competent to comment on his guilt or his innocence. Uh, that's up to other people too. Um, but as I said in chapel, I follow this case pretty closely over the years, and I've become persuaded myself that Omar was not guilty of throwing that grenade. There's a lot of, uh, there's a, quite a bit of evidence, and this is available in documentaries. Uh, most notably for me, we had Sam Spear, uh, Sam Morrison, who was a, uh, a lawyer appointed by the, the U.S. Department of Defense, and he was assigned to Omar's case. And he gave a talk both at King's and at the U of A in which he outlined all the reasons why he thought that uh, there was no case to be made, that, that there, was n there was no evidence brought forward that would ever stand up to the scrutiny of an ordinary court of law where all the evidence could be presented. And so for that reason, I, uh, I, I believe, and I, and I say this now, I didn't say it before, but I used to say, uh, but I do say now that I don't believe Omar was guilty of that, of throwing that grenade. Uh, the Supreme Court hearings, uh, you're, it would be better to interview Dennis about that, because he has much more intricate knowledge of exactly what that was, but really what it amounted to was the Supreme Court saying, yes, Omar's rights are being violated and it's incumbent upon Canada to act on his behalf. His, uh, the rule of law has not been observed, has not been followed. The government, the Supreme Court did stop short of mandating that the government repatriate Omar, uh, even though that was recommended. So I'm, I'm guessing that there are a lot of people that supported King's support of Omar, his, their advocacy for Omar. I'm guessing you also had some pushback. Can you say something about pushback that you might have received as a school? Uh, yeah, we did. Uh, we did receive pushback. Um, uh, we were quite, 
deliberate about uh, when we spoke about this to say that we are not saying anything about Omar's guilt or Omar's innocence. Uh, what we're doing is creating space and encouraging students to respond to something that they are learning in a way that they believe is really right. And, and faculty were supportive of that in guiding students. And um, I, uh, I, you know, we got, we got criticism from people for a variety of things, right? People said, well, you, how could you support him? He's a, uh, you know, he's, he's a terrorist. Or other people said, you know, shamefully, I believe, people say, well, he's a Muslim. Why are you worried about a Muslim? Like, who cares? And uh, you're a Christian school. Why would you bother? And that, but, of course, that's partly why we, exactly why we bother. I mean, we're mandated by gospel, by the gospel. Jesus said, love your enemies, you know, and do good to those who do you harm and embrace the stranger, uh, welcome the foreigner, and all kinds of ways in which we're, uh, you know, in which we're told to love our neighbor, regardless of their religious uh, persuasion and um, so we did get that kind of pushback you know and uh, I, I didn't get as much of it as some as maybe the president would have you know and I know that at the time of Omar's release and uh, when we were uh, you know in the process of admitting admitting him uh, that there was some concern like what will happen will the meet was it going to be a media storm here we're getting a lot of attention and we did we got some attention but nothing was uh, out of the ordinary really and people worried about you know whether Omar might attract attention from some uh, some person who might want to do him harm. Might that might that put some of our students at risk? And so we managed all of that very carefully and monitored the situation. But you know we we never had any of that. Nothing, nothing like that really ever happened. And Omar's time at King's was was pretty peaceful. I know that he gets you know he gets hate mail from time to time. Uh, this summer. After the announcement of the the apology and so on, I'm, I know that that was a difficult time for him. Right? Uh, well, can you say just something quickly about that, that apology? Because many people won't be familiar with that. Well, the government, uh, uh, the uh, Omar's lawyer sued the Canadian government, and there was a lawsuit for twenty million dollars for damages um, on Omar's behalf. Uh, I uh, and uh, the uh, the Trudeau government forestalled that. They, they saw that coming and they settled out of court. Uh, a $10 million payout was given to Omar. Uh, and, uh, and there was an apology issued for the treatment that both for what had not been done that should have been done and what had been done that should not have been done. And uh, a lot of people objected to that. I think I think a lot of people thought, well, maybe an apology is due, but why $10 million and so on? I had a lot of those conversations with people. And I just say to people, you know what, this is not, this is not a payment to Omar. This is a penalty to the Canadian government for failing to, to do what was right for one of its citizens. The government failed in its, in its duty. And when I violate the law, if I break the law, if I speed, I'm going to get a ticket, you know. And I'm not just going to have somebody say to me, don't speed. They're going to give me a ticket. Mm -hmm. And and the government was guilty of a pretty egregious uh, violation of the law. And so uh, and so there's there was a penalty. There's a big penalty. And it's it's punitive. And, uh, you know, the bar was set pretty high already uh, with the RR case a number of years ago. And uh, so I don't begrudge Omar that at all. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I, that's what I say about that, and I, I do believe that I think people are angry about it, and I say to people, well, you should be angry, but you but don't be angry at Omar. Be angry at successive governments that failed to do justice for him, that failed to live up to their obligation to their citizen, 
if they had done what they should have done, this would never, it wouldn't have come to this. I, I give my students this famous McDonald's hot coffee case oh, yeah. uh, of a lady named Stella Liebich who, who bought a, a cup of hot coffee and she burned herself and she was awarded several million dollars in a court. The first, when people just hear the details like that, they're usually incredulous or indignant. Right. How could that be the case? Until I give them the backstory as to McDonald's and their history of serving coffee that was heated at a safer than a proper right. t serving temperature, how she needed, she had third degree burns, needed skin grafts, and how this is the quickest way to penalize and change the practices of a corporation. And you begin to appreciate, yeah, you know, there's, there's more to it than what people often superficially yeah. would get. Now I want to just give an illustration from a story and, and tie it then into the Omar, to, to the, um, Omar's story. So it, it's the, the story of dead man walking. Oh, yeah. um, so Matthew Ponsolet, convicted of rape and murder, and Sister Prejean was this Catholic nun, and she decided she would become his confessor in prison and or counselor. And then, and now I'm going to switch to the 1995 film that tells that story, which right. stars Susan Sarandon uh, in that role. <coughs> and there's a scene there where she decides she needs to go to the parents of the young lady that was raped and murdered and they are, were outraged at her initially that she's become his confessor and when they she comes and knocks on their door and asks to speak to them they assume that she's not no longer his confessor and so when they open their door and welcome her in they she sits down and she has coffee with them and then there's this question I believe from the father when did you come over to our side and then she has to say, well, I think there's been some misunderstanding. You know, I'm still his confessor. And then they say, you've got to leave. And it's a very powerful scene. And my heart goes out to the parents. Mm -hmm. There's also this sense of a zero-sum game mm -hmm. where when you, when you, in a complex moral situation like this, you, you go with one person and you inevitably alienate, quote-unquote, the other side. Yeah. And uh, so... Setting aside the, 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 the difficult question of, of guilt and innocence, um, do you have any thoughts generally on that? Is it always a zero-sum game? Do we have to choose? No, I don't think so. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I remember that film very well. I'm also reminded of a story told uh, by Will Campbell. Um, I don't know if you've ever read his stuff, but Will Campbell was a... Uh, uh, an anti-racist activist and a preacher and the story is told I, I, I think I read this in a sermon by Fleming Rutledge where um, there was a, uh, a similar story where a young black girl was murdered and uh, the, uh, the man who was charged with that crime was a member of the Klan and might have even been a leader in the Klan and at the trial um, one day, uh, Campbell knew both families. He knew the family of the girl who had been uh, who had been killed, and he also knew the guy who was a member of the clan. And uh, one day, uh, he would sit with the family of the girl in court, and the next day, he would sit with the family of the clansmen. Hmm. And somebody said, "What's going on with you? Like, what? Well, you're with them, and then you're with them. Like, are you confused or what?" And he said, "No, I, this is, this may be uh, too raucous for your podcast." <laughs> but he said, "Why do you do that?" They said, "He says because I'm a goddamn Christian." <laughs> right, 
And it was like I because it isn't a zero sum game, right? There, there, no, no one is completely innocent. No one is completely guilty. And you know, and I, I've often said to people, even if Omar, even if it turned out at the end that Omar was guilty of something, I would still be his friend. I would still visit him in prison. I would still want him to be able to be reconciled uh, to himself and to the community. I don't. I don't hold a lot of hope for a reconciliation with uh, with, the, with the widow. If that was possible, that would be wonderful, you know. But I, I mean, I. She's suing Omar. Yeah, for a hundred million dollars okay. plus more, more than a hundred million dollars, and um, I, I don't. Yeah, that's a whole other. That's a whole other matter. Yeah. <coughs> um, <coughs> but I, I think there's there's another lesson in all of this, uh, which is that. Um, you know, uh, the, the way that we try to resolve conflict, you know, th this really is kind of born out of a much, much bigger uh, geopolitical complexity. And uh, when, whenever you try to resolve uh, conflict through violence, there's fallout, terrible fallout. And this is, this is a part of it. This is, this is what happens. Um, so and I think I think it is tragic. I, I I lament her loss. I really do. I her kids are growing up without a father, and I think she has a she has a lot of sadness in her life, and she may very well be. I think she is. You know, from things I've read, that she's quite bitter, and that that that's also ruins a life, right? And and uh, there's no there's no happy ending here. Just something else springs to mind, uh, which I think just kind of comes out of what you just said in terms of the complexities of issues. Uh, this film, American Sniper, came out a couple of years ago. True story of, of I think, right. the most prolific sniper in U.S. history, right. um, starring Bradley Cooper. And so then there, there's this scene where the father, when, when the, he and his brother are young, and the father's teaching them, and he says, there are three kinds of people in the world. There are sheep, there are sheep dogs, and there are wolves. You have to decide which one you're going to be. Right. What do you think of that? Is that is that is it that simple? No, of course not. It's not that simple at all. You know, the uh, the, the course of good and evil runs through every human being, and all of us are capable of remarkable good and beautiful things, and all of us are capable of uh, heinous crimes. And it's never that simple. It's complex. We you know we're, we're influenced by all kinds of things, and things happen to us. We never know really exactly how we're going to respond. I would say that at the end of the day, there's one thing, that we are all children of God. We are all made in God's image. We're all deserving of respect and dignity uh, to be given um, every chance that we, that we, uh, that we can, it, you know, uh, for reconciliation and, and to be restored to the fullness of what it means to be made in the image of God. And... Um, I can never separate myself from other people. I can, you know, the the, uh, the the South African idea of Ubuntu. I exist because you are. I mean, I'm. I my life is tied to other people, and so I cannot. I, you know, I'm not allowed to. I mean, I probably can because I'm a sinner. Uh, so I can. I, I, I can. I can reject other people, but I'm. I'm really not allowed to. Right. I, hmm. To dehumanize them is to dehumanize myself as well. So I think to ref to say, well, there are sheep and sheep dogs and and whatever the other one was, wolves. <laughs> I think is to is to set the stage for for violence. Mm. It sets the stage for that kind of uh, uh, dehumanizing of others. If I see somebody and I say, well, you're either on my side or you're on their side. You know, like you're either somebody that I can protect or somebody that I can shoot. 
uh, that's that's a terrible thing. So after after I, I saw that movie, American Sniper, uh, so it's set in Iraq in, in right. around 2003, four, and one of my friends, we were leaving the theater, and he commented the contrast between that film where. America, in this case, is invading another nation right. um, versus the film Red Dawn, which we grew up with, where the, the Soviets invade America. And in the one case, the people who are firing on the invaders are the heroes, and in the other case, they're the villains. It mm -hmm. all depends on how you frame the story. Right. Um, I also was, was thinking when, when you gave that the that African proverb, I remember Hillary Clinton 20 years ago writing this book, It Takes a Village, yeah. where her simple point, I mean, I just read her, her um, account of the 2016 election, and in that she recounts her simple point in that book was that we need to return to community. We need to, uh, it was really born out of an article she read from Lee Atwater, who was this major political operative for the Republican Party in the 1980s, and when he was dying of brain cancer in 1992, he lamented the fact that we they had sort of lost their moral center as a nation and we needed to return to the place of community and civic responsibility and so on. So she wrote this book inspired by that vision, It Takes a Village, that we need a community. And from the sort of more extreme right wing, the response was people literally made these associations that that's what Hitler said. Wow. So they're, they're, they twisted it to align it with a Nazi. Now here's the thing I want to come to is sometimes then when we enter into these conversations, it's already so politicized yeah. that we are slotted into right. being a liberal or a progressive right. or, you know, a Democrat or, or a Republican, depending on where you find yourself. Right. How do you have a prophetic voice without getting marginalized with these preset binary categorizations? Well, uh, it's a great point. It's very difficult, I think, but I, I challenge people when they say we, I say, when you say we, what do you mean? Do you mean we as Canadian citizens, or do you mean we as members of the body of Christ who are called to a different standard, to, mm. a, di to a different ethic? Um, and uh, I think that, uh, it, and I don't think those answers always are easy to discern, and we need to discern them together as a faith community. But I think that we need to, and, and this is not to say that I'm not both a, a member of the body of Christ and a Canadian citizen. I am a Canadian citizen, and, and I, I own that. But my primary identity, <clears throat> my primary identity is given to me in my baptism. In my baptism, I become someone who is in Christ, and I join others who are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are in a new ethic. We are in the ethic of the kingdom of God. And that has to take precedence over whether I am a liberal or a conservative or a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, I, I do, I, I work on both sides of the border sometimes. I, mean, do, do, I just came back from meetings in Michigan and so on with American colleagues and so on. And I, uh, I, I do find it's more polarized there than here, but mm -hmm. I see elements of that here. But I, I say to my friends, we go for breakfast, and I say, you, you guys, we are first members of the body of Christ. And then we choose our political affiliation depending on how well that affiliation lines up with what we're really being instructed by the Word of God. And I, 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 th I think that this polarization and the deep politicization of many of these issues stems from a failure to read Scripture carefully together. I really do. I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a deep spiritual crisis. 
where uh, you know you you can say that you're a member, you're you're a Christian, but really, what what is your real worldview, your real perspective, the real set of values that you live by, may or may not be f- formed by uh, by revelation at all. It might be mm. being formed by culture. If we're so deeply immersed in it that we have lost the ability to be self-critical and reflective about where where we are in that. So. I was talking about Omar one time with a with a group of people, and uh, one of them was a pastor. And he a- he actually said this to me. He says, "I think we should just bomb all these Muslims. We should just kill them." I say, "Well, who do you mean by we? Do you think that really? Do you think that the church should do that?" And then he kind of sat back and he said, "Well, no, not the church, but said, well, that's who you are. You're a minister of the word. You baptize people, and when you baptize people, you say to them." Uh, that you are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's your new identity. That's who you are. You have died to something, and you have been born to something new. That's what it means. So how can you say, we should bomb them to hell? Do we? Of course you can't say that. that but, yeah. <laughs> I was sort of speechless after that. I just, anyway. Yeah, I hear you. So what does, I'd like to maybe end off by coming back full circle. Sure. So you said... This sort of got going when you had Dennis Edney f- with, with, with King's involvement. Dennis Edney came on to speak in 2008. You're looking at all these marginalized groups, kind of fly under the radar. We just come back to, to, for Christians now, what are some of these, and you mentioned some of them, I think, already, but what are some of these issues of forgotten groups now that Christians listening to this can sort of focus on where they can be active, where they can make a difference? Yeah, well, I, for me right now, in this moment in, his, in, Canadian, in, in, in the life of Canadian society, it's definitely absolutely has to be with uh, the First Nations of our country. It, it has to be there. Uh, we've had a number of hearings across the country on uh, the residential sc- on residential schools. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission has done its work. They put out all these recommendations, and that we need to, we the the Christian Church needs to be deeply involved in that. We need to own those recommendations and say, yeah, this is what we are being called to. I meet, I still meet, uh, and we did that at King's. We were quite involved. The whole student body went to the TRC hearings when they were here in Edmonton, and. We built a reconciliation garden, and we invite Aboriginal people, uh, you know, from time to time. And not enough, not enough. And uh, but in my conversations with with people, I, I still hear way too often they should just get over it. Hmm. They should just get over it, right? As if to say, the colonizers won, so just learn to live with it. And I think that that's really bad. And I so I really believe that that's the place where Christians need to be deeply involved, particularly in Canadian life. I, I think that one of the other issues that I think needs a lot of advocacy is around climate change. I just came back from Bangladesh, where my family and I lived for a number of years, a long time ago. But I go there quite frequently and, and uh, remain uh, active with, a, with an organization there. And I see the consequences of climate change and eroded shorelines and increased salinity of, of the soil so that they can't grow rice. And, and what used to be rice paddies are being turned into shrimp farms. And, and uh, it's not like the consequences of climate change are coming. They're here. Uh-huh. And, and people in the global south are really experiencing them. So I think that we need to be really attentive to that. And we need to take, we need to take that seriously. You know? And uh, so those are two issues for sure. Yeah, there's enough yeah. there to yeah, occupy. Yeah, enough there to keep us busy, for sure. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Roy. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode of the Tentative Apologist podcast. For more episodes of the podcast, you can visit us online at randallrouser.com.